Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In the name of the President, the Congress, and the Supreme Court, Amen. Now, friends, this is my confession of faith. Surely there never was a fight better worth making than the one in which we are engaged. It little matters what befalls any one of us who for the time being stands in the forefront of battle. I hope we shall win, but win or lose we shall not falter. Whatever fate may at the moment overtake any of us, the movement itself will not stop. Our cause is based on the eternal principles of righteousness, and even though we who now lead may, for the time, fail, in the end the cause itself shall triumph. Now to you, men, who, in your turn, have come together to spend and be spent in the endless crusade against wrong. To you who face the future resolute and confident, to you who strive in a spirit of brotherhood, for the betterment of our nation, to you who gird yourselves for this great new fight in the never-ending warfare for the good of humankind, I say in closing, we stand at Armageddon, and we battle for the Lord. Theodore Roosevelt, accepting the Progressive Party's nomination for president, August 6, 1912. Greetings, everybody. CJ here, your one-man revolution, guerrilla scholar, warrior, and renaissance man in this new dark age in which we find ourselves speaking to you from the insane asylum known as America in early November of 2020. I decided somewhat spontaneously just over the last few days that I was going to put together some sort of an election special. 
The muse, the spirit of inspiration overtook me, and I realized I had what I thought at least were some important and arguably interesting thoughts to share with you all for your consideration, and that what I had to say about how I'm seeing the current political insanity in America, while it definitely has some connections and parallels to some points being made by others, particularly out there in kind of the alternative media landscape, you know, podcasters, people like that. But I realized that some of my thoughts about this go even deeper than at least what I've been hearing out of people who I largely agree with, but who I think may not always see things exactly as I do. Now, the last presidential election day back in November of 2016, I put together an episode talking about America's civil religion. And those of you who are longtime listeners or who have gone and combed through the back issues and listened to a lot of the older episodes, you may remember this one. I was particularly proud of it at the time. This is, you know, only two years into me doing the podcast, and I thought it came out pretty good. And in the episode, I basically talk about what a civil religion is and some of the ways we see it manifesting in the United States. And I put that out there in part because I was reading a lot of stuff at the time initially connected to the Civil War and then branching out from there about American civil religion and just so happened to be reading a lot of this stuff at the time the election was going down in 2016. And of course, once you see the civil religion for what it is, you realize that elections are an important national ritual in this religious faith. And so that was why I decided four years ago to put together that episode. And I thought things were pretty crazy back then, as did most other people sort of in my boat ideologically at the time. But then the last four years have basically said to 2016, hold my beer. And here we are in a realm today that makes 2016 look like a Norman Rockwell painting. And I decided that I would revisit the concept of civil religion, which, you know, I mostly stand by what I said in 2016 in terms of what it is and how to think about it and some of the ways it manifests in the United States. But over the past four years, and particularly over the last year, some of my perceptions as to what exactly is going on within the American political realm have led me to the conclusion that part of what's really going on here is a sectarian war about what the American civil religion should be. And even though mostly people think in Manichaean dichotomy type terms, left versus right, Republican versus Democrat, and so forth. I actually think that there's at least three and maybe more distinct factions at play in the battle to try and determine what the American civil religion should be going forward, which makes it a really interesting thing to watch, because it's not just, is it going to go with A or go with B? Instead, it's looking at at least three, possibly more factions, some of whom kind of work with others at times, and some of whom are always oppositional to the others. But regardless, I've come to the conclusion that what's going on, and what you can find evidence of back during the Obama years, but particularly amping up over the last four years in the Trump era, is a civil religion, civil war. In other words, a war between various factions in American politics 
ultimately over the question of what the civil religion of the United States should be. And that whereas in past eras and past generations, the American civil religion could be kind of murky enough and inclusive enough and malleable enough to take in most mainstream political opinions within it. For a variety of reasons, that increasingly is no longer the case. And it's turned into a zero-sum conflict, to a degree far beyond anything seen previously. And this is, of course, a very dangerous scenario, because as most people who've done even a modest amount of studying of history know, two types of conflicts that frequently get particularly nasty and brutal are civil wars and religious wars. So presumably, that would mean that a civil religious civil war, should it ever go full scale, could be horrific. And I'll talk a bit later about some historical parallels I see, going back to the wars of the Protestant Reformation in Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries. But first, I'm going to rebroadcast right now on this episode. From all the way back in 2016, DHP episode 124, Election Day Special, America's Civil Religion. So for any of you who have not heard that episode, say perhaps you're a listener who's come to the show since then and you haven't gone through all the back episodes or whatever. Or if you're someone who, like me until the other day, hasn't listened to the episode since it came out four years ago. I just re-listened to it over the weekend. I'm pretty sure for the first time since 2016. And so if you're someone like that who did listen to it but maybe need a refresher, I'm going to play it in this episode. With all the little housekeeping stuff and everything deleted out of it, it runs about 45 minutes. So if for any reason you don't want to or don't need to re-listen to my 2016 Civil Religion episode, you can go ahead and skip about 45 minutes forward in time from right now in the recording. And we will meet back up in 2020. For those of you who do want to re-listen to or listen to for the first time my 2016 Civil Religion episode, just keep it playing. I'm going to turn it over to CJ in 2016. And then I will catch you as well when I hand the mic back over to myself in 2020. So here is my civil religion episode from Election Day 2016. The separation of church and state has not denied the political realm a religious dimension. Although matters of religious belief, worship, and association are considered to be strictly private affairs, there are at the same time certain common elements of religious orientation that the great majority of Americans share. These have played a crucial role in the development of American institutions and still provide a religious dimension for the whole fabric of American life, including the political sphere. This public religious dimension is expressed in a set of beliefs, symbols, and rituals that I am calling the American Civil Religion. The inauguration of a president is an important ceremonial event in this religion. It reaffirms, among other things, the religious legitimation of the highest political authority. Robert N. Bella American civil religion borrows so heavily from the language and cadences of traditional faiths, many Americans see no conflict or distinction between the two. Many Americans equate dying for their country with dying for their faith. In America's civil religion, serving country can be co-equal with serving God. 
The locus of American civil religion is not the church or the synagogue or the mosque. Rather, it is the state, which uses sacred symbols of the nation for its own purposes and perpetuation. Harry S. Stout This is CJ, your Renaissance man, in this particularly dark hour of the new dark age, recording this on the eve of one of the most sacred days of the American civil religion, Election Day 2016, yet again, Turd Sandwich versus Giant Douche. And here I am racked this evening with depressing doubt that none of my preferred candidates, not Giant Meteor, not Cthulhu, not Vermin Supreme, not even the greatest candidate of all, nobody. I truly do believe if nobody wins, it'll be better for everybody. None of my preferred candidates look like they're likely to win, so I figured I'd commiserate with you and share some of my thoughts on the insanity of all this crap that's around us. Watching the giant national cult in America completely lose its shit all around me has really got me thinking lately about the religion of the state and politics that so many Americans just seem to be completely subsumed in. And so as a result of this, I decided to do an episode talking a bit about this topic. So this is Dangerous History Podcast Episode 124, Election Day 2016 Special, The American Civil Religion. Dave Smith, the comedian and host of the podcast Part of the Problem, which I really like, it's about the only current event sort of a podcast that's from a strong libertarianish anarchist perspective. Dave Smith on Part of the Problem has repeatedly made the point that others have made as well. He's not the first to point this out, but I think he does a good job in his way explaining it. The point that all of the ceremony and the pomp and circumstance and pageantry and special effects and all of the special rituals and recitations and so on of American politics is really needed precisely to distract from what the system really is, from what the state really is and what's really going on. People with ideas that are good and true and self-evident and logical and so on don't really need all the bells and whistles and smoke and mirrors and mantras and dogmas to make their point. And I think he's dead right, and I think that the majority of mainstream Americans, whether they're of nominally the left or the right, whether they also happen to be religious in the conventional, traditional sense of the word or not, are pretty far gone drinking the Kool-Aid of the American civil religion. Now, I just want to make a disclaimer in case you've not heard me speak on religion before. My intention here is not to get off into the weeds and render a verdict on conventional or traditional religious faiths one way or the other. I personally am not a believer in any faith or any supernatural concept of any type, but if you believe in such things, but you also believe in things like human freedom and self-ownership and something along the lines of the non-aggression principle, and therefore you don't believe you have any right to force your beliefs or preferences on others, then I really don't have any beef with you. And in fact, I've said this before, I'll say it again, I'd rather have a theistic anarchist as a neighbor than an atheist statist, or as some have called them, a state theist. 
I know I have many people of many different religious beliefs in this audience, and I appreciate all of you as listeners and in some cases as supporters of the show. And my gripe here is not with religion per se. It's with the whole idea of the government co-opting religious idioms and techniques and so on in order to give itself a greater veneer of legitimacy and transcendence, etc. And I really think that this state of affairs should be extremely off-putting and should offend you equally, regardless of what, if any, religious beliefs you may possibly have. So, what is a civil religion? Very interestingly, I think, and revealing perhaps, the first philosopher to use the actual term civil religion and talk about this stuff was the ultra-hardcore statist Jean-Jacques Rousseau, whose writings later became treated literally as sacred scripture. About a generation or so later, two extreme revolutionary statists, like Maximilien Robespierre in revolutionary France. In The Social Contract, which is his most famous and influential work, Rousseau argued that society, in his opinion, needed a civil religion that would give the state a sense of sacredness in the eyes of the people. And Robespierre and the Jacobins would try to do just that with the cult of the supreme being, which was a bizarre thing that they tried to get going in revolutionary France and that just never really took hold, to put it mildly. By contrast with that, America's civil religion hasn't really tried to start a wholly brand new religious tradition. Instead, what it's done is it has borrowed from and blended with and so on. Lots of different elements of regular traditional religions, primarily Christianity, of course, and to a lesser extent Judaism and and a few other things. But it does so in such a way that it has grafted itself almost seamlessly in the minds of most Americans onto these pre-existing beliefs and archetypes and tropes and so on of religion. And it has mostly been so successful in this that the vast majority of mainstream Americans, whether liberal or conservative, whether conventionally of religious faith or not, do subscribe to at least some version of the American civil religion. And is evidence of just how effective this has been. Witness how many Americans who are self-proclaimed deists or agnostics or even atheists who worship the state and participate in its rituals and behave in exactly the same fashion as a devout member of a conventional faith, and who, of course, vehemently attack anyone who seriously questions any of their bedrock presuppositions. So this has been a massive thing in American life, and I know other countries currently or in the past have had versions of the civil religion. You could argue that Rome, ancient Rome, had a version of it, and that many other modern countries have as well. But I think at the at the current moment that the United States arguably has the most overwhelmingly powerful and still believed by a lot of its population civil religions in the world, and that it is in many cases, totally disconnecting people from reality. And I think it'd be tough to argue that the American brand of civil religion hasn't been important throughout much of American history. But American scholars didn't really start thinking and writing about this concept and applying it to America's past and present in any sort of an explicit way until the sociologist Robert Bella wrote an article in 1967 entitled Civil Religion in America, published in the journal Daedalus. 
And by the way, I will link to the full text of this article on the show notes for this episode over at DangerousHistoryPodcast.com. And I'll link to a bunch of other cool stuff, too, that's either related to stuff I'm talking about or at least related to the concept of civil religion or to the whole notion of elections. So in the external links for the show notes in this episode, I'll be linking to, besides the Bella article, the classic George Carlin bit on why he doesn't vote, which if you've not seen that, you really need to watch it. I'll also be linking to a really excellent version of Bob Dylan singing his song With God on Our Side, which is one of my favorite Bob Dylan songs and which really illustrates in a kind of sardonic way the civil religion of the United States, at least as of the mid-20th century, and I would argue it's only gotten worse since then. And also, just in case you're male and you're still considering voting, there's one more reason not to besides the fact that it doesn't accomplish anything worthwhile and is arguably not a moral act. It can also potentially drop your testosterone. That's right. If you vote for a candidate and that candidate loses, Scientific American showed about seven years ago that it'll drop your testosterone level. Now, as far as I know, there are no studies on what happens to your testosterone if you don't vote at all, but I don't know. Personally, I feel like a bull shark ever since I stopped voting. And if you don't know what bull sharks have to do with testosterone, you can just Google bull shark testosterone and find out. So anyway, I always try to link to some cool stuff in, in every episode as much as possible, but this one I think I've really got some cool stuff, even by comparison. Anyway, the heyday of the first wave of scholarship on this whole idea of civil religion in America, much of it was sociological and also somewhat in the realms of political science and history, but the heyday of this scholarship really occurred over the course of about a decade between the publishing of Bella's article and the American Bicentennial in 1976. And since then, it's really dropped off as a topic. There certainly have been other articles and books examining it, both historically and in regard to current events, but it just hasn't been a major topic of interest. However, again, given the current insanity of this cult around those of us who don't believe in it and who happen to be living on the dirt in between the pieces of dirt known as Canada and Mexico right now. And let's face it, this has been for nearly two years, this never-ending campaign of 2016. Because of all this insanity, I really felt it would be an opportune time to talk about this a bit on this show. So let's talk a bit about the origins of American civil religion. And a lot of the earliest seeds of this can be traced back to the New England Puritan colonists. And it's interesting how many things that are bad in kind of American history and American culture you can say that about, right? That you could say, oh, yeah, you can ultimately trace the seed of it back to the to the Puritans. So yet another thing we can trace back to that. And if you want one key document, but there are certainly many others you could look at, the speech by John Winthrop entitled A Model of Christian Charity in which he referred to the Puritan colony as, quote, a city upon a hill, end quote, that he thought would serve as a beacon and would redeem the world. And America has really, in a lot of ways, had a messiah complex, or if you want to be a little bit less charitable about it, a narcissism and delusions of grandeur complex ever since, at least many Americans. However, the grandiosity of 
these Puritan ideas was limited by the decentralized nature and the localism of America in the colonial period. And besides, the Puritans were only dominant in New England, and much of the rest of British North America flat out didn't share their same ideas of religion and of some sort of divine mission and so on. Then the War of Independence started to flesh out a truly national civil religion a little bit more, as did some other early events in the American Republic post-independence, such as the writing and ratification of the Constitution. But still, the civil religion remained much, much more limited of a thing, with much less pull amongst the masses than anything that we're used to. It's true that most Americans still had very little direct contact with the federal government beyond voting every few years and occasionally using the Postal Service. But the American civil religion really got a major amplification and really came into its own as we know it as a result of the so-called American Civil War, as brilliantly covered by Harry Stout in his book Upon the Altar of the Nation, A Moral History of the American Civil War, which I'm sure I'll refer to a zillion times in my upcoming Not-So-Civil War series. This is what Harry Stout says about this, quote, In 1860, no coherent nation commanded the sacred allegiance of all Americans over and against their states and regions. For the citizenry to embrace the idea of a nation-state that must have a messianic duty and command one's highest loyalty would require a massive sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, end quote. So that was a huge part of it, and of course the cult of Lincoln is all wrapped up in that, more on that later. And then it kind of faded a little bit during the so-called Gilded Age, though it never went back to what it was prior to the Civil War, sort of a version of the, the famous ratchet effect there. And then after that, it got reamplified yet again in the late 19th and early 20th century progressive era, as the progressives really very deliberately and consciously sought to build the civil religion much further than it had ever been. And you can see this quite clearly in a lot of the writings and speeches of a lot of the progressive intellectuals. And it was in the progressive era, give or take, that a lot of the key elements of the American civil religion as we know it came to be or were at least begun. So, for example, the Pledge of Allegiance was written in 1892, and it was in subsequent decades that it became something that almost every schoolchild in America had to say. The Lincoln Memorial, one of the cultiest things in Washington, D.C., was begun in 1914 and completed in 1922. And the practice of putting dead politicians on coinage, which was a new thing in America, which you could argue is idolatry of dead politicians, also began during this time period in 1909 with the very first, not coincidentally, the Lincoln Penny. And of course, especially the speeches of Woodrow Wilson are just dripping with messianic messages about America redeeming the world and all that kind of stuff. And Mount Rushmore was begun in 1927, perhaps a little bit after the heyday of the original progressive era, but clearly in the same spirit, and definitely, I think, something you couldn't imagine the U.S. government beginning prior to the coming of progressivism to the political scene. Of course, the massive mobilization for World War II depended very heavily on playing to the kind of pre-propagandized American people using all the right themes and keywords and so on. And then the war itself and all the great spirit of sacrifice and so on greatly amped up civil religion in America. And the deification of the greatest generation and the nostalgia for World War II have been important parts of this theology ever since then. FDR has become 
pretty much a demigod to just about all Democrats, and even many Republicans see him as a quote-unquote great man and great president. Other presidents since FDR are more debatable. A lot of people like Kennedy, in part because he had the good luck for his reputation of getting assassinated. And of course, many Republicans now are pushing hard to make Ronald Reagan into another quote-unquote great president. Facts be damned. And it's very important to keep in mind, and I'll probably mention this again at some point in this episode, that the cult of the presidency plays a very major role in the American civil religion, both whoever the current president happens to be and also the past presidents, especially the allegedly great ones. Robert Linder wrote this in a 1996 article published in the Journal of Church and State about the roles American presidents play in the civil religion. Quote, Throughout American history, the president has provided the leadership in the public faith. Sometimes he has functioned primarily as a national prophet, as did Abraham Lincoln. Occasionally he has served primarily as the nation's pastor, as did Dwight Eisenhower. At other times he has performed primarily as the high priest of the civil religion, as did Ronald Reagan. In prophetic civil religion, the president assesses the nation's actions in relation to transcendent values and calls upon the people to make sacrifices in times of crisis and to repent of their corporate sins when their behavior falls short of the national ideals. As the national pastor, he provides spiritual inspiration to the people by affirming American core values and urging them to appropriate those values and by comforting them in their afflictions. In the priestly role, the president makes America itself the ultimate reference point. He leads the citizenry in affirming and celebrating the nation, and reminds them of the national mission, while at the same time glorifying and praising his political flock. End quote. I've long thought that the shepherd metaphor for leadership, by the way, is always very interesting and revealing. And not just because it implies that the people are sheep, but also because you've got to ask yourself the question— why does a shepherd, even a good one, perhaps especially a good one, tend to his flock? It's not because he's just a kind animal lover. It's because he doesn't want other predators to exploit his flock, because he wants to be the one to do it himself. So I want to talk a little bit more about how the cult of the U.S. government and U.S. politics and so on is, in my opinion, a religion. First, a little bit of definition type stuff. Here are the first couple of paragraphs under the term religion in Wikipedia. Quote, religion is a cultural system of behaviors and practices, worldviews, sacred texts, holy places, ethics, and societal organization that relate humanity to what an anthropologist has called an order of existence. Different religions may or may not contain various elements, ranging from the divine, sacred things, faith, a supernatural being or supernatural beings, or some sort of ultimacy and transcendence that will provide norms and power for the rest of life. Religious practices may include rituals, sermons, commemoration or veneration of God or deities, sacrifices, festivals, feasts, trances, initiations, funerary services, matrimonial services, meditation, prayer, music, art, dance, public service, or other aspects of human culture. Religions have sacred histories and narratives which may be preserved in sacred scriptures and symbols and holy places that aim mostly to give a meaning to life. 
Religions may contain symbolic stories, which are sometimes said by followers to be true, that have the side purpose of explaining the origin of life, the universe, and other things. End quote. Now, how much of that stuff that I just read to you can you see in the American government and the way that people think of it and interact with it? And one thing that is only briefly mentioned in that passage I just read you that I don't think is emphasized quite enough in that sort of definition or introduction to the term religion is the concept of faith, meaning that one's beliefs are based on things other than just reason and evidence alone. Now, again, if someone just has a belief on whether or not they think there's a supreme being or whether or not they think there's an afterlife or something like that, that doesn't in and of itself threaten my or yours or anyone else's rights. But when you're in the realm of the state and politics and so on, by definition, you are in the realm of force and coercion. And so all of these things take on a much more sinister cast, because now it's no longer just your opinion on these sorts of questions. It's now, by definition, about trying to force the preferences of some onto the lives of others. So let's walk through some things that were mentioned by that passage from Wikipedia and some things that maybe were not, and just briefly mention some ways that we can see these things in the cult of the U.S. government. Dogmas. In other words, bedrock beliefs and principles that you just have to accept and that you're not allowed to challenge or anything like that. We could all probably come up with many dogmas regarding the American government and the American system. America's the greatest country ever. America's the freest country. It's the indispensable nation. It should lead, which usually means rule, the world. How about these ones? Government of, by, and for the people. Voting is important. Our government represents us. And on and on and on. How about rituals? Well, here are just a few that come to mind off the top of my head. How about political party conventions and all of the ceremony and pageantry and choreography and so on? How about political debates? How about elections themselves and all that goes along with it? Here's a big one, one of the most explicitly religious-like ones we have, inaugurations. Or not far behind that, the opening sessions of legislators, including the Congress. How about at least some aspects of things like trials and state executions? How about the celebration of state-sanctioned holidays? I think these and many others are examples we could easily come up with of rituals. Then there are sacred scriptures and texts. And I don't just mean references to God or the use of biblical language or allusion or metaphor in these things, though that's there, of course, but also how very often subsequent generations of Americans have been taught to view these things, often in an oversimplified way, out of context, even if they've read them firsthand at all, which many people haven't. And oftentimes, subsequent generations of Americans impute way more meaning and significance and so on to these sacred texts than even the people who actually composed them did. So let's just throw down a few examples of sacred scriptures or texts. The Declaration of Independence. The Constitution. Lincoln speeches, but not all Lincoln speeches, because, of course, there's the ones where he says racist things or the ones where he said, hey, if the South just submits to the Union's authority and pays taxes, they can keep their slaves. Those Lincoln speeches aren't part of the sacred texts, but there are two ones specifically that they cherry-picked, because they're the nicest sounding and they don't contain anything racist or anything like that. And those are, of course, the Gettysburg Address and Lincoln's Second Inaugural. 
Another recent one that's entered the sacred canon is the Martin Luther King I Have a Dream speech, and there are many others we could think of. Speeches, documents, declarations, whatever, that people impute depth and significance to that is obviously of the same sort as the way the conventionally religious faithful treat their sacred scriptures. Then there are holy places and or shrines, and the state is full of these. Probably the mecca of it all, quite literally, is Washington, D.C., and in particular the National Mall, with all of its monuments to wars and to quote-unquote great leaders, and at the top of it all, the Lincoln Memorial. And then there are lesser ones around the country of various sorts, Independence Hall, Gettysburg, the Statue of Liberty, Mount Rushmore, now the former site of the Twin Towers is this way, and of course national cemeteries, with... The number one being, of course, Arlington, which also includes the bodies not just of soldiers, but of the slain presidents Kennedy and Lincoln. Then the state has sermons, and these can take many forms, but a common one in many types of American civil religious discourse have been variations of the Jeremiah, which you can find in usage already back during the days of the Puritans. This is a form of sermon that the Puritans really liked and that a lot of like old-timey, Old Testament sorts of Christians are fond of. Typically, a Jeremiah would start with referring to a virtuous founding generation beginning the project of building the city on the hill, and then it would talk about how subsequent generations, basically the audience of the sermon, were losing their way in sin and were in great danger, but could potentially redeem themselves if they only mend their ways. And it's very much based on this covenant idea from the Old Testament of the relationship the Israelites had to their God, Yahweh. And this is very common throughout American history as a form of political speech and writing. And I think today where you see it the most commonly is in right-wing media, particularly conventional right-wing media, like mainstream right-wing talk radio and so on. Then, of course, you've got the concept of sacrifice, and this is primarily in the form of martyrs dying in war for the state. Also, sometimes brought up, though not on the same level, not nearly as venerated, but spoken of in like a lighter version of this, is the sacrifice of generations who paid higher taxes and submitted to things like rationing during, for example, World War II. And of course, anytime the government wants to take more of your money, or more of your resources, or whatever, they're always going to talk about in terms of, oh, it's shared sacrifice for the common good, right? Then there are sacred days, festivals, feasts, etc. And just briefly name a few of these. Thanksgiving, Memorial Day, Independence Day, Veterans Day, President's Day, Martin Luther King Day. And of course, we could probably come up with others as well. Then we have spells, mantras, incantations, prayers, etc., etc., etc. And of course, the Pledge of Allegiance is by far the number one example of this in this category. And there are others as well, and there are even little innocuous ones, or seemingly innocuous, that are dropped into political speeches and used in sort of everyday speech amongst regular people. And... They become repeated so much that they are repeated almost mindlessly. And if you ever question these things, you are in trouble. You might as well be walking up to a devoutly religious person and very aggressively saying that their religion is stupid. Let me just give you a few examples of these little tiny mantras and incantations that are all over American speech and writing. God bless America. 
Thank you for your service. How about this one? Our brave men and women in uniform, often spoken as if it's just one word smushed together. How about things like love it or leave it? Or one that I've seen constantly on bumper stickers lately is one that's just got an American flag and it says, stand up for America, be an American. And countless more, I'm sure we could all come up with them. Sometimes these are campaign slogans, in which case they might not last very long. Then again, they sometimes make their mark on history. New Deal, Fair Deal, Square Deal, New Frontier, Great Society, Hope and Change, Make America Great Again, etc., etc. And we could also include things under this category, like Oaths of Office, these things that magically, magically transform a previously ordinary individual, although in reality, let's face it, they're often in terms of ethics and sometimes even intelligence far, far less than ordinary, but transformed a previously otherwise ordinary person into someone who now has to be spoken of with a special title, Mr. President, Senator, whatever it might be. And this person can now compel others backed up by the threat of massive overwhelming force. Now that is a magical spell indeed. Then there's music. How about God Bless America, the song? Probably number one in this category, even a bit above the Star Spangled Banner. And then, of course, there's the third tier, My Country Tis of Thee. And then there are more recent ones like Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA and Toby Keith's courtesy of the red, white, and blue. And in the minds of some people who are too dumb to realize it's a satire, probably the Team America theme song as well. And of course, we have sacred histories and narratives, much of the oversimplified, childish, naive, one-sided views of history that people believe, in which the great leaders are deified and idolized, and national mythologies are inculcated, and important questions are never asked. And then, of course, we have temples, which... There are lots of different versions of this, certainly the big shrines, the cemeteries, the monuments, and a lot of like the big government buildings, you know, where they have the columns and the sculptures and all the stuff that's designed to make you feel small and insignificant and to feel the grandeur and majesty of the state. This stuff, these techniques have been known since ancient times, since probably the Neolithic age, if not at the absolute latest, the Bronze Age. Leaders have figured this out. Clearly, the, the Romans had mastered it. Many others have as well. And whenever there's all this grandeur and majesty and pomp and circumstance, again, I agree with Dave Smith, it's covering up for the fact that there's a con going on. It's covering up for the complete amount of bullshit that's taking place and the fact that some people are getting screwed and exploited for the benefit of others. You need all the ceremony and the columns and all this sort of stuff to keep things camouflaged. And think about this in regard to the idea of sacred sites and temples and so on. I would argue that American tourists very often travel to Washington, D.C. and behave like devout Muslims making the Hajj to Mecca, or perhaps like medieval Christians going to the Holy Land or to the home of some important saint or whatever. It is very much a pilgrimage. Then there are symbols and totems and things like this, and first and foremost, of course, the American flag. Harry Stout writes this in Upon the Altar of the Nation, quote, The American flag stands as America's totem. Soldiers killed in battle are buried in flags. America at war is a nation festooned with flags, in 2005 no less than in 1861. American patriots reflexively invoke the stars and stripes, or old glory, as the object they are willing to kill and be killed for. 
critics of America at home and abroad who burned the flag are accused of desecration, literally a trampling on the divine, end quote. And just think about all of the super intricate rules about how an American flag is to be stored, displayed, cared for, how it's supposed to be destroyed if it's damaged or whatever. And these are as intricate as any Bronze Age or Iron Age religious ritual, if not more so. And then, of course, there's all the rules regarding flags and symbols and ceremonies and anthems and so on regarding hats. And religions, as George Carlin pointed out long ago, are famous for having all sorts of intricate rules regarding headwear. They've got rules about who's allowed to wear a hat and who's not, in what situations one must wear a hat, and in, one's, in what situations one must not wear a hat. And sometimes it's the opposite for men and women. In situation A, all men must take their hats off and all women must cover their heads. In situation B, the opposite is the case. So think of things like that in regards to things like the flag and patriotic songs and whatever. And of course, most religions have some sort of priest. It may be called something different, be a little bit different functionally, but basically it's a priest. And in the American political religion, most importantly, of course, are the presidents themselves. As Harry Stout points out, the presidency is the only office in all of America that, by law, can never, ever be vacant, not even for one day. That's how important they think it is. And I would point out that the whole notion of, you've probably heard people say a version of this a thousand times, you don't have to like the current occupant, but you have to respect the office. That clearly is the sentiment of someone who believes that a title, an office, a position is sacred. And of course, the fact that he's the commander in chief and everywhere he goes, they roll out the red carpet. They play the theme music. There's a parade. They shut down a whole city so he can get a burger. This all reinforces it. Speaking of commander-in-chief, the high-level military commanders underneath him are sometimes treated in a similar reverential sort of way as well. And Harry Stout, in Upon the Altar of the Nation, argues that West Point was, in terms of the American civil religion, the first American seminary of it, and that other military academies have joined it since. I'd also argue that the Supreme Court justices are treated in this sort of priestly way as well. They come out, they're in their special black moo-moos, and they go through all these rituals and whatever, and they, they, you know, tear out the guts of a pigeon so that they can tell us what the Bill of Rights actually means, because we're too stupid to read it ourselves. You know, they take auspices and watch the birds in flight, and based on that, tell you what things like Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech actually means. Turns out, by the way, it almost never means what it actually seems to mean. And then, of course, there are the saints, the demigods, the people who are treated as more than human, and that long after they're dead, we build temples and monuments to them and name things after them, and we write little biographies of them that they were these perfect, virtuous people that we should all imitate. And it's all bullshit, but who cares? It makes you feel good. So, what happens to the greatest of the high priests of the American cult after they've shoveled off this mortal coil? The answer is, they become treated as saints. And of course, some of the greatest saints of American history include people like George Washington, who more than one writer on American civil religion has referred to as America's Moses, and Abraham Lincoln, that many of these same scholars refer to as America's Jesus. And by the way, I've been referring to Abraham Lincoln as America's Jesus for many years long before I ever read up on the civil religion. And I used to point things out like, look, he had a beard, he died for our sins, and they built a temple to him. What else do you want? 
So those are probably the highest of the high, but obviously we could name a whole bunch more saints in the American religion, including the other quote-unquote founding fathers. I mean, even the label of, of that for them it is very revealing, that you're taught to think of these as like superhuman beings, and a whole bunch more of the so-called great or near-great presidents. Their lives, especially in popular history, in the books of people like Doris Kearns Goodwin and other kind of mainstream non-academic history writers, and in a lot of depictions of things like the presidents in popular historical TV shows, you know, back when, for example, History Channel even bothered with the pretense of pretending to make history shows. They write of these people and speak of these people in, in almost the exact same terminology as the way that medieval Christian religious authorities talked about the lives of the saints. And like that, woe be to the person who questions any of the national pantheon or who shares any dirt on these people or anything like that. So I think that gives a pretty good overview of the elements of traditional religiosity that the American civil religion clearly has its version of. And certainly in the lexicon of American civil religion, there are a lot of themes that are directly plagiarized from Judaism and Christianity. Things like the concept of America being a chosen people, a new Israel, a messianic or redeemer nation, a whole concept of Exodus, a whole concept of the promised land, all these sorts of things. And again, the Jeremiah, the idea of trying to live up to the promise of your ancestors. But it's not obviously identical. The American civil religion is not identical with just traditional a la carte Christianity or Judaism. It's obviously taking those idioms and that language and so on and using it for its own purposes. Another thing that the American civil religion has in common with conventional religion is that, like many regular religions, the civil religion has a high degree of flexibility in some of the details of how one interprets it and follows it. In particular, in the different elements of it that can be either emphasized or de-emphasized in the minds of the individual believer in order to make the whole thing fit with their own personality and preferences better. So basically, people Rorschach these things to fit themselves. Just like how different people, very different people in terms of personality and background, can oftentimes read the exact same religious texts and both claim to believe in them wholeheartedly, yet they both come to very different conclusions about their meanings. So for example, someone who has a stern personality can read a holy book and come to the conclusion that it shows them that there is a vengeful deity. While another person who has a more kind of gentle and forgiving personality can read the exact same stuff and come away believing that it tells him of a God of love and forgiveness and so on. Both individuals in this case claim to be believing in the exact same deity and the same sacred texts, but obviously their details and conclusions are actually pretty different. And I would argue that that's what's going on in the American civil religion. And one example would be the Constitution, when people bother to read it at all, which isn't very often, that a leftist and a right-winger can both read the Constitution and claim that their beliefs are backed up by it. And one can choose to emphasize or de-emphasize certain elements and, and saints within the pantheon of the American civil religion to make it fit them. So, quote-unquote, conservatives might emphasize the militaristic aspects of the American civil religion more and might focus more on patron saints like George Washington and George Patton and Chris Kyle, while, quote-unquote, liberals might emphasize the more egalitarian parts of the American civil religion more and might focus more on patron saints that fit their archetypes better. 
people like Franklin Roosevelt and John and Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King. Although, interestingly, virtually everyone, left, right, or center, who drinks any flavor of the Kool-Aid of the American civil religion, pretty much worships Lincoln. He truly is America's national Jesus. He's bearded, he died for our sins, and everyone tends to want to interpret them in their own way. And let me just digress briefly and say that the cult of Lincoln was begun quite early, in fact, while Lincoln's corpse was probably still warm, and it hasn't slacked off much since. And let me just read you one powerful example of this, written not long after Lincoln's death by William Herndon, who was Lincoln's former law partner, and I think was at one point mayor of Springfield. He wrote this after Lincoln's death, quote, For fifty years, God rolled Abraham Lincoln through his fiery furnace. He did it to try Abraham and to purify him for his purposes. This made Mr. Lincoln humble, tender, forbearing to suffering, kind, sensitive, tolerant, broadening, deepening, and widening his whole nature, making him the noblest and loveliest character since Jesus Christ. I believe that Lincoln was God's chosen one. End quote. And of course, I should point out the Lincoln Memorial is actually a self-proclaimed temple. Don't take my word for it. Read the inscription above the Lincoln statue's head, where it is engraved, quote, In this temple, as in the hearts of the people, for whom he saved the Union, the memory of Abraham Lincoln is enshrined forever. So anyway, liberal and conservative Americans do have very different emphases, very different flavors, but ultimately they're worshiping the same thing, just interpreted very differently in the details. And it's kind of like how a devout Catholic and a devout Pentecostal might have very different views on almost everything, and yet both claim and believe themselves to be devoutly Christian. And of course, while the devout Catholic and the devout Pentecostal might vehemently disagree with each other over the details of the correct interpretation and application of Christianity, they'd probably find common ground really quickly if they were confronted with an outspoken Hindu. And they might find common ground even more quickly and even more vigorously if they were confronted with an outspoken atheist. In that light, conventional party and electoral politics in America can largely be seen as an argument and a battle between fanatical fundamentalists about the exact meaning of the American civil religion and which faction gets to force its interpretation of that religion on the others. So within all this, where does voting fit in? I think it's pretty clear. In at least a couple of ways, and perhaps more if we thought about it longer. Voting is a dogma. You gotta vote. And it's also a ritual. It makes people think that some sort of almost supernatural thing has happened. And it sets the stage for the magical ritual of the, the inauguration. And perhaps most importantly of all, for any religious ritual, if it wants to endure and be passed on from generation to generation... The ritual gives the practitioner a cathartic experience. But of course, to the non-believer, viewing this from the outside, the catharsis is entirely within the mind of the practitioner. It's not an objective thing. The non-believer in this system and in this cult of the state doesn't believe it and rejects it as false. I'm not personally religious, either in the civil religion sense or in the conventional, traditional, theistic sense. But I would say that if you believe in a god or gods of some sort, 
then it seems to me at least that if you really take your religion seriously, then the American civil religion should offend you as being idolatry, as being a horrific golden calf, whereby a bunch of lying psychopaths and sociopaths pose as the divine representative on earth. And in that light, if you're conventionally religious, you should reject the American civil religion. If, on the other hand, like me, you're not religious in the traditional sense, then you should also reject the American civil religion. Because if you reject the overall concept of a deity or deities at all, then how much more vehemently should you be disgusted, terrified, revolted, and horrified by a bunch of lying psychopaths and sociopaths posing as divine representatives on Earth? And on that note, I would like to wish you a happy and holy Election Day for 2016. In the name of the President, the Congress, and the Supreme Court, Amen. All right, so welcome back to 2020. My condolences. So now that we've reviewed the overall concept of civil religion and how it is manifested in the U.S. historically, given our current situation four years after that original episode, what would I add or amend when it comes to my take on the current status of American civil religion? First off, in 2016, I really think that I overestimated both the degree of cohesiveness and the flexibility of the U.S. civil religion, or what you might call its big tentness. Back in 2016, I still thought more in terms of people with differing ideological orientations, still being able to Rorschach their beliefs and values onto the same kind of broad civil religion in different ways. And I thought of it in terms of it still being the same basic civil religion, just with different emphases for different people, coming to it with kind of different ideological and psychological baggage. But now I think a schism more fundamental like the Protestant Reformation, has happened, and that there's been a full-on rupture into fully separate sects that are mutually exclusive. I still think that Bella's overall description of civil religion as a phenomenon is basically valid. However, unlike Bella, writing back in 1967, who seems to have seen American civil religion at that time as a mostly benign force, I, of course, as I did in 2016, see the whole concept of civil religion as creepy and culty, as I mentioned back in that 2016 episode that you just probably re-listened to or listened to for the first time. Also, unlike Bella writing in 1967, I no longer see American civil religion as a single religious denomination, or as therefore being any sort of a unifying force. Now, to be fair, though, I should point out that from what I gather, Bella himself later backed off from some of his portrayal of the American civil religion as being mostly benign, and he may also have backed off on his description of its cohesiveness and inclusiveness, though I'm less sure about that second part, and I can't claim to have really read much of Bella's later writings and comments on the issue of civil religion, aside from that famous 1967 article. But to do the classic historian move and think about historical context, 
it makes absolute sense that someone writing around the year 1967 would tend to see American civil religion as a singular thing, even if there were sort of subgroups within its tent. Because in 1967, the full-on counterculture and culture wars were still in their early stages, still mostly bubbling under the surface. And these things wouldn't fully start to blow up until the period of roughly, say, 1968 to 1974. In fact, the highest ever measured of the question, do you trust the U.S. government to do the right thing, since that index began to be measured and recorded in the 50s, was actually measured in 1966 when it was at 61%, which is the highest it's ever been. And within just a couple of years of 1966, it had fallen below 50%, and it hasn't cracked 50% again. And in fact, this index has spent most of the last 50-plus years well below 50%. I think if memory serves, the highest it ever got since 1966 was in the mid-80s, the mid-1980s, when it got up into the mid-40s percentile, around the time of Ronald Reagan's landslide re-election. Though the exposure of the Iran-Contra scandal would drop it back again significantly soon after that. And it's mostly been bouncing around from the 30s into the low 40s percent ever since. But back in 1967, to an academic of the older generation like Bella, who was either at the tail end of the GI generation or the very beginning of the silent generation, but either way, to a guy like that writing in 1967, the sort of New Deal slash post-World War II center-right-center-left mainstream political consensus might have still seemed largely intact. And while there already was some fracture of the civil religion over things like civil rights and the Vietnam War, nonetheless, the overall post-World War II quote-unquote high of prosperity and bipartisan consensus and social cohesiveness about most major issues was just only on the verge of falling apart, and it hadn't quite fully fallen apart yet. But then it definitely would to a much greater extent from the last couple of years of the 60s and then into the 70s and ever since. But I think it's at least possible that the sectarianism within the civil religion might have gone even further in the last four years or so than it ever did in the late 60s and the 1970s. Watching events unfold since 2016, and particularly over the course of the year 2020, and thinking about what's going on in big-picture historical terms like I tend to do, I've really come to the conclusion that we've got a full-blown cold, still mostly cold at this point, civil war going on within the American civil religion. And it has even gotten hot a few times in a few places where you see things like street fights and even what seem to be full-blown kind of tit-for-tat targeted killings between right-wing and left-wing vigilantes and thugs taking place in a few cities. This civil-religious civil war has still, thankfully, mostly cold, but it has gotten hot in a few times and places, and it could heat up any time. 
Back in 2016, I talked about how left-wing and right-wing versions of the American civil religion still would tend to have more in common with each other than with completely different or even foreign alternatives. In the same way that regular religions that are pretty closely connected often can cause people to feel more like they're on the same team as opposed to a religion that's wildly different from both. And in some circumstances, of course, that is and has been true. Right? I mean, a Lutheran and a Catholic might feel that they have a lot in common with each other if they're both dropped into a Hindu country, or a Buddhist country, or a Muslim country, or whatever. But the fact of the matter is, as I didn't really stress in 2016, even though I kind of knew it just from studying history, the fact of the matter is that, obviously, in other circumstances, religions that are in the grand scheme of things not that dissimilar to each other, right, religions that might even be considered just sort of different denominations of the same kind of broad, overarching faith, in certain circumstances, groups like that can actually come to hate and even fight each other with a hell of a lot of viciousness. Sometimes the small differences can lead to greater hatred and greater violence and atrocities. And lots of examples from different times and places in history come to mind, including, but not limited to, the various conflicts between Sunni and Shia Muslims that have flared up periodically for over a thousand years at this point, and that are currently a major factor though obviously not the only factor, driving conflicts in the Middle East and Southwest Asia to this day. Another example of this sort of thing would, of course, be the Troubles, the 20th century irregular warfare between Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland. But to my mind, a case with a ton of interesting parallels to the current conflicts around civil religion in America are the various conflicts of the Protestant Reformation in Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries. Like most, or maybe even all, history podcasters, I'm a huge fan of Dan Carlin and hardcore history, even though, of course, I don't always agree with him on everything, but he's obviously very good at what he does and he's a real trailblazer and kind of the single most important individual in really putting history podcasting on the map. Some of my favorite Dan Carlin hardcore history episodes are kind of what might be considered cult classics. They're some of the lesser-known, older, standalone episodes, the ones that aren't part of the big famous series, like his series on Rome, or his series on the Eastern Front in World War II, or his series on the Mongols, all of which are great, don't get me wrong. But I really like some of these standalone ones. Not so much the really, really early episodes that he did, which, while some of those are cool, are pretty short, and they are, like the early episodes of many podcast shows, including this one, the kind of period when he was figuring out what the show was really going to be. Now, again, some of those are interesting, but they're not my real favorites either. The standalone episodes I like best of his are the ones that are starting to get pretty long, the ones that are starting to get three, four, five hours long, that get into some depth on a story, but that don't need multiple seven-hour episodes to make up a giant series. Case in point, one of my all-time favorites, one that is probably a cult classic among serious hardcore history fans, and one that doesn't get as much attention and love 
among casual Carlin fans as his Mongol series or his World War I and World War II series, etc., is the episode I'm going to talk a little bit about here that I think has some relevance to what I'm talking about in this DHP episode, and that is Hardcore History episode number 48, Prophets of Doom. Now, if you're not familiar with this episode, I highly recommend it. It's an older episode, so it's behind Dan Carlin's paywall, but it's over four hours long, and it's very, very interesting and well done. And in my humble opinion, it is well worth the $2.99 it currently costs to buy it. The episode centers around a particularly crazy story in 16th century Europe, fairly early on in the conflicts of the Protestant Reformation. The story revolves around the German city of Munster, which gets taken over by really radical Protestant religious zealots who are far more extreme than Lutherans. Now, I can't do this episode justice by trying to summarize it in detail here, so I won't even try. But I'll give just kind of like a quick sketch and say that what you had was a situation in Central Europe, still relatively early into the Protestant Reformation, where you had the very, very loose confederation then known as the Holy Roman Empire, as, theoretically at least, the overarching political authority over much of Central Europe, but in which the territories that we think of today mostly as quote-unquote Germany were really broken into a whole bunch of small to medium-sized political units, ranging from virtually city-states to kind of mid-sized duchies and principalities. Most of these states were either Catholic or Lutheran, though some had a mixture of people in them. And there were some wildcard extremist sects that both the Catholics and Lutherans seemed to have hated and feared even more than they hated and feared each other. Now, as Dan points out in the episode, and as many historians have argued in many books on this topic, the key factors in giving Luther the traction and the pull to be able to start a real breakaway movement from the Catholic Church were a combination of the printing press and Luther's translation of the Bible into vernacular German, which took away the Catholic Church's monopoly on reading and interpreting the Bible and telling the people what they were supposed to think about what it meant. Basically, the printing press and the translation of the Bible into vernacular caused the Catholic Church to lose its gatekeeping power. Hmm. Gatekeepers losing their monopoly. Where have I heard that before? Now this, combined with the fact that Luther was able to get some powerful political leaders to support and protect him, allowed him to lead a successful secession movement from the Catholic Church in many parts of Europe. Keep in mind, Luther was by no means the first theologian to severely critique the Catholic Church's doctrines and institutional practices and its corruption and so forth. He was just the first one to do so, that the Church authorities were not able to either intimidate into recantation or simply try and execute as a heretic. But once Luther got the ball rolling, there were others who wanted to go much further than Luther ever did, in terms of radically reinterpreting the Bible and its meaning, and who wanted to completely upend existing society and implement some sort of evangelical Christian communism 
with a lot of apocalyptic overtones. Most of these sorts of people at the time were known as Anabaptists, and while some of them were nonviolent, others advocated violence to overthrow the existing order and implement their idea of a Christian communist utopia. In the 1530s, Anabaptists, particularly those among them who were the most apocalyptic and accepting of violence, began to, kind of under the guidance of some charismatic leaders, coalesce and congregate in the German city of Munster, where previously there had actually been a decent amount of peaceful coexistence between Catholics and Lutherans. Eventually, these radicals are able to basically take over the city of Munster, and they begin upending the existing society. And things go wildly off the rails, and the next thing you know, despite the fact that they claim to be egalitarians, the radical Anabaptists began establishing their own new hierarchy of power, with all sorts of horrific consequences for those who stood in their way or who merely refused to go along and submit and conform. They also, as is often the case with cults that go off the rails, begin to go wild with sexuality in a number of ways. I won't spoil the details of everything, including the ending here, so I'll just leave the narrative of the story of Munster kind of there for now, and again, direct you to Dan Carlin's Prophets of Doom episode if you've not listened to it before. I think it deserves listening to, even if you've listened to it but it's been many years, I think it deserves listening to again in light of 2020. I myself re-listened to Prophets of Doom just a couple of weeks before I started putting together this episode, and obviously it was a big part of inspiring this episode, and I felt drawn to it given, in particular, what had happened in Chaz, right, in Seattle, remember that whole thing, as well as what's been going on in Portland, ever since the killing of George Floyd and all that. And so I think there's a lot of interesting lessons and parallels and some interesting divergences from the Prophets of Doom story and the overall story of the Protestant Reformation and all the wars it sparked in Europe that relate to the current state of the American civil religion. In my analysis of comparing the conflict over American civil religion to the conflicts of the Protestant Reformation between the different denominations of Christianity, of course, the analogy isn't going to be perfect, things aren't going to all match up quite right, because obviously the situations aren't the same. There are important differences between 16th and century Europe and early 21st century America, obviously. But nonetheless, I think that there's some interesting perspective to be gained by doing the comparison and building the analogy. So, let's analogize. The story of the Protestant Reformation and all the conflicts that came out of it was, to a significant extent, as we've mentioned before, sparked and molded by two important innovations, one in what you might call hardware, one in what you might call software. The first, of course, the hardware innovation was Johann Gutenberg's invention of the modern printing press in the 15th century, which made it possible to mass-produce printed material much more quickly and cheaply relatively than previously for the first time. Now, of course, most of you probably know that a version of the printing press was invented much earlier in China, but that said, when you look into the details of kind of how it worked and how it was used, it wasn't exactly the same thing, and so I still think it's fair to say that Gutenberg's was kind of like the first modern printing press whose basic principles 
would be used in printing presses for centuries thereafter in a way that the older Chinese printing press, you know, didn't quite hang around. But anyway, the second innovation, what I'm going to call the software innovation, was of course Luther's translation of the Bible into vernacular German, combined with his teaching, just in general, that every Christian should be able to read and understand the Bible for themselves. By analogy, in the American civil-religious civil war, the key hardware innovation was the internet itself, and secondarily, the various devices that allow people to access it more and more constantly throughout the day, the most important of which, of course, has been the smartphone. And while you could argue that a number of software innovations have been important in creating the internet as we know it today, I think that arguably one of the most important, if not the most important, both overall and specifically in terms of weakening, if not eliminating the gatekeepers, and perhaps unwittingly sparking the civil-religious-civil war, has been social media. Though to that, we could probably add a few other software innovations, things like podcasting and streaming video technology that's virtually free and unlimited. And these sorts of things have allowed average people who don't have a massive corporation behind them to not only consume, but also to produce and distribute all kinds of information on an exponentially greater scale than ever before. Back before these technologies, for example, the best that most groups and individuals with unorthodox ideas could do was to mail out paper newsletters to their mailing lists and maybe get a spot on some minor radio station somewhere and things like that. So Luther's translation of the Bible into the vernacular and the use of the printing press to mass produce it, as well as to mass produce the other writings of Luther, as well as subsequent reformers kicked off over a century of religious conflicts that ultimately culminated in the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century. By analogy, one could argue that the use of the internet and social media by anti-establishment political voices, and most prominently and recently by Donald Trump, who eventually became sort of like a focal point for a lot of unorthodox political voices on the right, really kicked on the full-on religious conflict in terms of the civil religion in which we find ourselves. It was kind of that, and then the establishment's responses. Now, how long it lasts, how nasty it gets, and how it ultimately ends, who knows? Maybe we'll all luck out, and it'll fizzle out somehow, and people will eventually come to their senses. It could happen. But somehow I doubt it, in part because I think the establishment is already striking back and reasserting itself, which will in turn kick off ever more resistance from the other side in an escalating cycle that cannot and has not stayed only in the online and virtual realms. It has and probably increasingly will spill over into the real world, the physical realm. Now, that said, in analogizing the current civil-religious-civil war to the wars of the Reformation, the factions in this conflict don't exactly match up with their equivalents in the wars of the Reformation. In my analogy, the American right would, for a variety of reasons, be considered the Catholics of the civil religion. That is, they 
see themselves as the traditionalists, the conservatives in the broad sense of that word. The center-left, the mainstream progressives, basically the Democratic Party establishment, are in many ways the equivalent of the Lutherans. They're reformers in the sense that they're seeking to move the civil religion away from the truly conservative. Only, unlike the Lutherans in the actual Reformation, who essentially seceded from the Catholic Church after it failed to adopt Luther's reforms, the Lutherans of the American civil religion, again, basically the mainstream progressives, actually over the course of the 20th century, took over the major existing institutions of the American civil religion, such as the news and entertainment media, as well as all levels of institutional schooling from K-12 to universities. So, in other words, in this analogy, it would be as if the Lutherans, instead of seceding from the Catholic Church, had actually somehow managed to gradually infiltrate and take over the Catholic Church's institutions and its facilities and started to change their theology and teachings. And yet there would still be masses of old-school Catholics of the rank and file who were resisting in various ways, going along with this new direction. In other words, by analogy, the right-wingers in America who prefer an older version of the American civil religion. Now, Trump becoming president would be in this scenario I've been describing, as if the Catholics had somehow managed to get a guy who was at least somewhat sympathetic to them, at least enough to pander to them, if nothing else. Get a guy sympathetic to them into the papacy of this church that had been taken over by Lutherans for over a century. Now, this would, of course, make most of the existing church hierarchy and establishment go bananas, as Trump basically did to the American political establishment. Now, in this analogy, the radical Anabaptists would, of course, be the more extreme elements of kind of the SJW, BLM, Antifa, cultural Marxism, critical theory milieu. Like the Anabaptists in regard to the Lutherans, this faction, which I'll probably just refer to mostly as SJWs from now on for kind of simplicity's sake, they want to go far beyond where the mainstream establishment progressives wanted to go, and basically want to, if they could get their way, completely upend society. By the way, just as a side note, looking at the original Anabaptists, among other things, they were hardcore iconoclasts, and they liked to do things like destroy statues and all that sort of stuff. Hmm, who does that sound like? And honestly, as I've alluded to earlier, when I re-listened to Dan Carlin's telling of the story of 16th century Munster, in light of 2020, I couldn't help but think that it sounded a lot like Chaz or Portland. Except, believe it or not, peak Munster was actually way crazier than anything that's happened at least so far in Seattle or Portland or any other city in America. Now, in the actual Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther was pretty quick to see the more extreme Protestants, like the Anabaptists, as a major threat, both to Lutheranism itself and to just kind of like existing civil society. And Luther, other than wanting to scrap and replace certain doctrines and practices of the Catholic Church, 
was otherwise, at least as far as I'm aware, a pretty socially conservative guy. So Luther, as well as Lutheran-leaning secular authorities, right, like princes and things, were pretty quick to throw the Anabaptists under the bus, so to speak, even though the Anabaptists claimed to be just taking Luther's ideas and following them to their logical conclusions. By contrast, in the American civil-religious civil war, the more mainstream American progressives, right, basically the corporate establishment Democrats, Biden, the Clintons, etc., for the most part, they have not done that to the SJWs. They have not thrown them under the bus the way Luther threw the Anabaptists under the bus. The establishment Democrats occasionally will kind of push the SJWs down, like the way, for example, that the Democratic establishment pulled out all the stops to throw the nomination to Biden. But the establishment Democrats seem to feel that the SJWs and their ideas are useful, even though, let's face it, someone like Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton or even Kamala Harris, I really don't believe, give a shit about the more far-out elements of the woke stuff. I think they find that crowd and their ideas to be politically useful sometimes. And pandering to all that, so far, hasn't required the establishment progressives to do much or to sacrifice much. Basically, they can keep doing the same pro-war, pro-empire, pro-corporate, pro-police state type shit. And just make sure there are some female and or non-white and or gay and or trans people in the mix in positions of power in the warfare, corporate, police-type state. Like a lot of great memes have been pointing out lately, the people of Pakistan must be really excited that now they're going to be droned by an administration whose VP has her pronouns in her Twitter bio. It's so fucking progressive. Or maybe it's just superficial pandering putting a shallow, meaningless veneer of diversity on the American empire. So the mainstream progressives have found the SJWs to be useful enough that they find them worth tolerating and worth pandering to and doing the kind of occasional token symbolic thing to keep them mollified. That said, it's possible that under the right conditions, the center-left might decide to throw them under the bus if they started to become a real problem. Not for society in general, they don't care about that. But if the SJW started to be a problem for the establishment progressives. And they might throw them under the bus even if they just perceived the SJWs as no longer being useful. Because after all, the center-left, the mainstream progressives in this country, have always been, for well over a century. If nothing else, ruthlessly pragmatic. Because while they do have an ideology, the centerpiece of it has always been, above all else, about grabbing and holding and profiting from power. Just look at people like the Clintons, Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Kamala Harris, etc. Yes, they have an ideology, but at the end of the day, the most important thing is power. So if the SJWs and their ideology start to become not helpful, for the mainstream progressives to be able to get and hold power, they could very well end up getting thrown under the bus. Then again, it's also possible that the SJWs could be a cuckoo in the nest of mainstream corporatist progressivism, 
it could end up being the way that the German center-right in the Weimar era, how they made a political alliance with the Nazis because they thought they could use the Nazis but keep them under control. But it turned out that ultimately the Nazis ended up using them, the mainstream right. That kind of a thing could happen. There are many ways this could play out. Infinite variables. Among other things, there are specific factors at play in today's America that were not factors in Reformation-era Europe, though of course the reverse is true too, obviously. Now among these other wild cards in the mix that make the American scenario hard to predict are things like racial tensions that have a long and deep history, all the baggage that goes along with late-stage imperial decline, which I think the U.S. clearly is in, the related factor of economic decline, And so these are all long-term stresses, but then, of course, there are the more acute ones this year of all the effects of the lockdowns. Not the virus itself primarily, but the government's and society's responses to it. These are things that people are only just starting to fully comprehend, and that we may not yet fully grasp for some time to come. But when you start to think really hard about the economic psychological and sociological effects of the lockdowns and the ripple effects of all the disruptions it has caused to nearly everyone's physical, mental, and financial health to one degree or another. You start to realize that all of this is, to put it mildly, a very volatile powder keg that could quite possibly be touched off by the spark of civil religious conflict. Also, just as a side note, the Scottish, now Americanized historian Neil Ferguson, who I find to be one of the most interesting thinkers that's still somewhat in the mainstream and somewhat part of the establishment. You know, definitely not a guy that I agree with on everything, but a guy I always find worth listening to and reading and thinking about in terms of his ideas and his arguments. He made both a book and a PBS series called War of the World, centered around the idea of trying to understand why the 20th century ended up being so violent. And his main argument on this was that what made the 20th century so violent, and why in particular so much of the worst violence occurred on the Eurasian landmass, was a combination of several factors coming together. Combination of ethnic hatreds, economic volatility, and empires in decline. That this is at the root of things like the world wars and the massive revolutions and the rise of totalitarianism and all the different things, you know, the conflicts that ultimately grew out of the Cold War, etc. That it ultimately was due more than anything else to that combination. Ethnic hatreds, economic volatility, empires in decline. Well, look at the United States right now. Do you have ethnic hatreds, economic volatility, and empires in decline? You tell me.
one more analogy I want to bring up before I close things out for this episode, and that is the case of pietist versus liturgical versions of Christianity. Because I think there's something there that also illuminates some elements of the civil religious civil war. Pietist versus liturgical Christianity in 19th century America is a topic I think I've brought up more than once on various DHP episodes, including my coverage a while back of party systems in American history. Because the whole pietist versus liturgical dynamic was an important underlying factor in both the second party system, which would be the Whigs versus the Democrats from kind of the late 1820s through the mid-1850s, as well as the third party system, which is Republicans versus Democrats from the mid-1850s through to about 1896. I'll try to remember to link in the show notes of this episode to an excellent article from the summer-fall issue of the Journal of Libertarian Studies, I believe from 1982, by an historian named Richard Jensen, where he lays all this out. Rothbard also talked about this in a few places in his coverage of U.S. history, too, by the way. Basically, due to the impact of the Second Great Awakening in America, by the mid-19th century, pietist Christianity was rapidly growing in America. Examples that Jensen cites of pietist Christian denominations would be groups like the Methodists, Quakers, New School Presbyterians, Northern Baptists, Congregationalists, and Low Church Lutherans. By contrast to them were the denominations known as liturgical, which would be things like Roman Catholics, Old School Presbyterians, Episcopalians, and High Church Lutherans. Basically, the Catholics and the more sort of conservative and less evangelical Protestant denominations. Jensen describes the unifying themes of pietist theology as follows, quote, Probably their most basic unity was the conviction that religious salvation depended upon a deeply personal internal feeling of the presence of Christ within the soul, end quote, and the belief, quote, that all men can be saved by a direct confrontation with Christ, not the church, through a conversion experience, end quote. So the pietists were very much more the emotional and evangelical types who stressed concepts of being born again and who were often involved with things like religious revival movements. Jensen elaborates further about the pietists that they, quote, were the aggressive group because of their universalism. Not only could everyone be saved, but they should be. Impediments to salvation in the human environment were morally evil, so it was the duty of every good pietistic Christian to remove them. The moral reasoning of the pietists was based upon two deep inner feelings generated by the conversion experience, guilt and achievement. The revivals worked because the preachers successfully infused the listener with a deep sense of guilt over his sins and anxiety about his terrible fate, and then removed the guilt and anxiety by the joyful experience of conversion to the faith. The sense of achievement associated with conversion mandated constant introspection, 
heightened by the sense of anxiety about future and individual guilt, and alerted the person to the reality of social evils. It may also have produced a sense of collective guilt for social evil. The inner logic of pietism forced it to expand. Its manifest destiny was to Christianize the entire world, beginning with the country at hand. The pietist ethic was teleological, that is, goal-directed. Moral behavior consisted in the search for goodness for both the individual and the community. End quote. He then goes on to describe how, for most pietists who were post-millennial at the time in their eschatology, the goal in question was to create a kingdom of God on earth in order to pave the way for the second coming of Christ, because they believed that this was how the end times would play out, that first man would create a kingdom of God on earth, and then, and only then, would Christ eventually return. The liturgicals, by contrast, believed that, quote, Salvation came through strict adherence to the church through its sacraments or its creeds. Spontaneous inner religiosity was dangerous unless properly controlled by priests or theologians. For most liturgicals, certain prescribed rituals were essential. Likewise, most were hierarchical and authoritarian, so that false doctrine and heresy could be crushed. As opposed to the universalistic Arminianism of the pietists, the liturgicals were particularistic. Only certain souls would be saved and the salvation outside the quote-unquote true faith was unlikely or impossible, end quote. Further on, Jensen explains that the liturgicals had a very different moral reasoning than did the pietists. Quote, They were much more particularistic. Group ethical standards were maintained by manifestation of honor and shame, as opposed to achievement and guilt. Excommunication was the most dreaded penalty, while the love and acclaim of the group was the highest earthly reward. The liturgical churches also guaranteed eternal rewards for everyone who followed their codes. Right behavior, and ultimately salvation, depended upon following the rules exactly. The inner spirit which the pietists listened to, the liturgicals explained, was a dangerous source of trouble, particularly for individualists with a great deal of pride. End quote. Now, analogizing all this to the current civil-religious conflict in America, I think the right are clearly the most liturgical. Their notion of civil religion is much more rule-oriented, and more about outward things like manifestations of behavior and rituals, and respecting norms and authority figures. Notice, for example, all of the right's emphasis on ritual related to things like the flag and the national anthem and so forth. But they're not really as obsessed with making their adherents internalize all the beliefs as they are with simply wanting people to exhibit the outward behaviors. Another piece of evidence for this is that, of all the basic flavors of American civil religion, the right seems to be the most comfortable with having significant aspects of human life and culture be non-political, whereas the various leftist civil religious denominations seem to want to politicize everything, even sports and the weather. Furthermore, just as liturgical Christians place the emphasis on rule-following, rather than on emotions and following one's own inner light or sense of morality or whatever. 
so the right tends to at least pay lip service to the idea of following the Constitution strictly and the overall concepts of the rule of law and basic consistency and fairness. Now, I'm not saying that the right always actually lives up to these ideas or even applies them fairly to others. I'm merely saying that in their discourse, things like this are generally emphasized as important components of good behavior. In general, all of this in my mind makes the right's civil religion, in relative terms, probably the least threatening, all else being equal. But it does not, however, mean that there's no danger at all in the right's civil religion, because, of course, one can find instances historically of liturgical Christianity being pretty oppressive and prone to persecution of dissenters in certain times and places. Remember, even in the quote from Jensen, how he mentioned that liturgical churches are prone to stopping out internal heresy. But in general, liturgical faiths are often more inclined to mostly confine religion to its own sphere of life, rather than having it pervade everything in a totalitarian way, as pietists seem to be more prone to do. Now, regarding the center-left or kind of mainstream progressives, I think they're relatively more pietistic than the right in their civil religion. However, I think they were much more pietistic and evangelical in their earlier phases, particularly progressivism version 1.0, as I call it, from, say, the 1890s through about 1920. And the quote from TR that I started this episode off with is a good example of this, as are many, many statements made by Woodrow Wilson. But I think because center-left progressivism has dominated most of the cultural and intellectual institutions of the U.S. for over a century, this has caused them to moderate somewhat and gradually become less pietistic and evangelical than they used to be, though they are still prone to authoritarianism for sure. But then we get to the woke SJW sect. They clearly seem to be the most pietistic and evangelical in their civil religion. They're relatively the most zealous, the most totalitarian, and the most interested in not just policing other people's actions and words, but also in wanting to police their very thoughts. They want everything to be politicized, and they are the least tolerant of dissent. They also clearly want to make the most dramatic changes away from any pre-existing version of American civil religion, and want to deconstruct all of that entirely and replace it with their own woke, pietistic civil religion. Notice how, in regard to the question of kind of following some sort of rules versus following one's own emotions and subjective sense of right, the center-left progressives have, for over a century, been the champions of the whole idea of the quote-unquote living constitution, which while it wants the Constitution to always be up for constant reinterpretation, does at least pay lip service to the idea of having a Constitution. But notice how the SJW sect, which I'm arguing is the most pietistic denomination of civil religion in America, seems not to give a crap at all about even paying lip service to things like the Constitution, the rule of law, and overall notions of basic fair play and meritocracy, and instead they substitute wildly subjective and emotional standards. So notice how, for example, they will privilege 
lived experience and other subjective and anecdotal forms of quote-unquote evidence over cold hard facts and statistics and so forth. Their civil religion is both very pietistic as well as evangelical, and the idea is that you, as someone who's been saved or born again, have a direct hotline to the god of their civil religion, and all of the good that comes from your subjective experience supersedes all formal rules and all reason and evidence. Again, think about the implications of this in the realm of politics and civil religion. So, even though I'm an admitted atheist when it comes to civil religion, I will say that it seems to me, all else being equal, from most liturgical to most pietistic in the realm of civil religion, the order I would put these sects that I've been talking about in would be right, most liturgical, then center-left getting a little bit more pietistic, and then the woke far-left being way down the pietistic spectrum. And that's also how I would rank these denominations in terms of how dangerous they potentially are, from relatively least dangerous to relatively most dangerous. Though again, let me state for the record, I'm not joining up with any of these cults, and I do see all of them as dangerous to one degree or another, and I think that any of the three could become much more dangerous given the right set of circumstances. So to wrap this episode up, I hope you've found my thoughts and ramblings thought-provoking, if nothing else. If, like me, you are an atheist when it comes to the question of civil religion, if you're not interested in joining any of the political cults, then I think you have to think very carefully about what's going on and how it could potentially escalate even more or go completely off the rails and realize that you have to figure out how to weather a potential storm as best you can, realizing that as someone who's not wanting to join any of these cults, you're part of a small, radical remnant. And none of these cults are your friend, and you shouldn't expect that you're going to convert very many of them. You probably can convert a few, but not a huge number of them, to leave their particular cult. The best analogy that comes to my mind to think about this is that I would say to be a civil religious non-believer in present-day America is somewhat comparable to being maybe a Jew or some other non-Christian in Europe during the conflicts of the Reformation. In other words, you don't really have a dog in the fight. You don't want to join any side. More than anything, you just want to figure out how best to navigate through it all without ending up on anybody's radar or in anybody's crosshairs. For myself, in my day-to-day life out in the world, I go pretty gray man as far as not overtly broadcasting anything political or ideological most of the time. So far, the area I live in has been pretty quiet throughout 2020. There was one George Floyd protest that I know of back near the beginning of all of that, but it was orderly and peaceful and there was no rioting or anything like that. I live in a red county that went for Trump in 2020, as well as 2016. But it's not overwhelmingly red. And while people definitely have had their signs and bumper stickers and all that shit up for the election, I haven't seen or heard of anything that leads me to worry that local violence is likely around here anytime soon. If you live in a place that's already seen or seems likely to see any real political violence... You probably don't need me to tell you this, but I'd recommend looking to relocate soon, if that's at all feasible for you. 
If you're in a place that has been or could be prone to political violence, and for whatever reason you're just not able to relocate anytime soon, then I urge you to be very, very cautious and prudent and strategic. I recommend you be a gray man or woman out there in the world and that you stay away from things like protests or demonstrations because you never know when those things can go off the rails fast for any number of reasons. And of course, stay the hell away from any riots or looting and don't go looking to be some sort of a vigilante hero. In times like these, you've got to prioritize looking after you and yours. Now, all that said, you should be prepared if necessary, to defend yourself, your loved ones, and your home. Should a bad situation come your way despite your best efforts to avoid it? Learn at least the basics of self-defense if you're not already familiar with them, both hand-to-hand as well as using whatever weapons you have access to. Intellectually, I would also urge all of you, if you don't want to get sucked into a civil religious cult, to do your best to really avoid the Manichaean temptation here. Try to avoid thinking down Manichaean lines, because in this conflict, there are at least three factions. The right, the center-left, and the far-left, each of which could probably be broken down even further into subgroups. And then, of course, there are the small numbers of individualist anarchists, civil religious atheists like me. And then, of course, let's be honest, there's a group possibly the biggest group in overall numbers, who just aren't really ideological at all and are just kind of going with the flow. Regardless of whether or not they vote or identify as a particular party, they're not that ideological, they're just kind of going with the flow. So I would urge you to try not to get sucked into the Manichaean world, the kind of Sith Lord perspective where everyone who doesn't totally agree with you must be part of one monolithic evil group who are all out to get you. That's just not a good place to be in psychologically for a variety of reasons. And if you spend too much time there, it's going to be bad for you physiologically, too. As I think Michael Malice says, take a red pill, but don't quaff down the whole fucking bottle. Because red pills, like anything else, you can ultimately OD on. I think it's fair to say that, from the perspective of an individualist anarchist, The far-out SJW-BLM-Antifa civil religion is the scariest civil religion in the current mix. Both because it's the most antagonistic to kind of basic normal human society, and because it's got the most innate totalitarianism in it, should it ever come to total power. By contrast, the center-right and center-left civil religions are both, I think, a bit less inherently scary in terms of the content of their doctrine. But on the flip side, both of them are, at least in my estimation, much more likely to actually take over the institutions of state power fully, and therefore they might have greater odds of doing greater damage, simply because either of them are more likely to really take over full national power. Even though, in the, in my opinion, less likely scenario that full-blown, militant, true-believing SJWs rather than just centrist progressives pandering to SJWs. If they ever actually took over the power of the central state, unlikely as that is, it would be the most oppressive result of all. The violence of the Protestant Reformation in Europe did not end with the violent fiasco at Munster in the 1530s. 
Instead, it flared up repeatedly for more than a century after that, culminating in the bloody nightmare of the Thirty Years' War. This war, true to its name, lasted almost exactly 30 years to the day, from May of 1618 to May of 1648. Almost every then-existing state in Europe participated in the conflict to some extent, though the bulk of the worst violence and destruction happened in Central Europe, mostly in the area we now think of as Germany, as well as in Bohemia, or basically today's Czech Republic. The Thirty Years' War was enormously destructive. Some historians have argued convincingly that this was the most destructive war in Central Europe prior to the World Wars of the 20th century. Somewhere between 4 and 8 million people are believed to have died due to this war, with the majority of that number coming, as is often the case, from things like starvation and disease. But there were also bloody battles, as well as plenty of mass atrocities against civilians, too. In fact, people who lived through it said that in some areas of Germany during the war, you couldn't find a tree of any size that didn't have some dead bodies hanging from it. In some specific areas of Germany, 60% of the pre-war population died. Overall, about a third of Central Europe's urban population died, and about 40% of the rural population did, as well. The Thirty Years' War finally ended with the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, which ended large-scale religious war in Europe. It extended and enlarged on the earlier Peace of Augsburg from 1555, which had tried to make peace between Protestants and Catholics in Central Europe by basically saying that each German prince could choose for himself between Catholicism and Lutheranism for his state, and that that would then be the state religion of his territory. Though in the Peace of Augsburg, Calvinism was not an option. So, the Peace of Westphalia added Calvinism as an option as well, and furthermore it said that dissidents within each state, meaning those of different faiths than the established church of their prince and their state, would be tolerated to practice their religion privately. Lastly, the Peace of Westphalia established the modern principle of state sovereignty, in the sense that states are not supposed to interfere in the internal affairs of other states. In other words, all the states were agreeing that they were no longer going to go to war to try and change the internal religious arrangements of other states. Of course, the states of Europe would still fight plenty of wars over other things, and eventually the French Revolution would replace wars driven by religious zealotry with wars driven by secular political zealotry. And an interesting, if somewhat dark thing to ponder, is did Europe's religious hatreds really need to flare up so bad and ultimately kind of burn themselves out before enough leaders and people were ready to agree to basically a live-and-let-live compromise sort of peace on the religious question? I sincerely hope that the civil-religious civil war in the U.S. of today does not need to burn itself out that catastrophically in order for people to start to come to their senses in mass. I really do hope that the still mostly cold civil-religious war doesn't get any hotter. 
It'd be nice if we could just sort of scene skip over the bloodbath and get right to the peace of Westphalia, which, by analogy to today's America, would be, at the very least, some sort of significant decentralization or devolution of power. Or even better yet, full-blown fragmentation of the U.S., preferably not into just two, but at least a half a dozen or more separate states. All of which could then develop its own local civil religion, rather than having a war of all against all, in which every civil religious jihadi of whatever ideology is in a constant zero-sum game, trying to force their civil religion on everybody else. A conflict that, at best, stays in the electoral realm and is just a political wrestling match every few years over who gets to point the gun, known as the federal government, at which other factions, in order to force those other factions to comply to the civil religious preferences of whoever succeeded in using the ballot box to grab the gun of the state. And all of that is bad enough, and this is a conflict that at worst could go from the ballot box to the cartridge box. I don't want that, and if you're a sane person of any belief system, but especially if you're a civil religious atheist like me, you really shouldn't want that either. I don't want America's civil religious civil war to turn into something like the Thirty Years' War. So again, if, like me, you're an atheist in regard to the question of civil religion, you need to realize that you're a non-believer surrounded by fervent zealots of various civil religious cults, and you need to be strategic and act accordingly. If things continue to amp up, which I hope doesn't happen, but obviously it's a possibility, then you're basically in the situation of being a non-Christian in Reformation-era Europe, and you need to be pragmatic and prudent in terms of how you navigate these things. You need to protect yourself and those you care about, both physically, but also in terms of mental health, in terms of sanity. You need to do what you can to network with like-minded people for mutual aid, and in worst-case scenario, mutual defense. But you really need to realize that you are not going to reason most people out of their beliefs in these circumstances. It is not your job or your duty to do so, and it's an impossible task anyway. And just like George W. Bush saying after 9-11 that it was America's duty to rid the world of evil, if you take on a completely impossible job, whether it's ridding the world of evil or thinking you can actually talk a majority of Americans out of their civil religious cults, you will not achieve the impossible goal in question, but you almost certainly will do a lot of damage to yourself and to others in the process of pursuing it. You need to realize that a lot of people around you are descending into civil religious jihadism for their particular sect, and you need to see that for what it is and avoid falling into some sort of Manichaean temptation and getting sucked into someone else's cult or someone else's fight in which you really don't and shouldn't have a dog. Basically, what I'm saying is, to summon Kipling, you need to keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. You need to trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. 
And even if you're hated, don't give way to hating. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He has trampled out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. you've enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can 
financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else, as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warrior's private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level, and you'll get all the benefits of the Journeyman level, plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level, plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc. to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History Podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future.